The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal business tax or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures. Perfect. Well, it's great to see you all here today. And this event is Building American Dynamism with, with Chris Power, the founder of Hadrian. And Chris has some big news today. We're really excited to announce that, that Chris just made public his 90 million uh, Series A investment into Hadrian, uh, co-led by Andreessen Horowitz and Next Capital. Um, we're thrilled to be a part of it. The, the reason it's so exciting, or one of the reasons it's so exciting, is it's the first investment out of our American dynamism practice, which, uh, which supports companies that are supporting the national interest. And we'll dive into to why we think Hadrian is, in so many ways, emblematic of, of American dynamism. Uh, but we're also privileged to have Packy McCormick and Mark Andreessen here to talk more about the mission as well. So thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Chris, why don't we start with your origin story? Because uh, you've been working on Hadrian for for one. Uh, it's an interesting uh, circuitous path as to how you got started on the journey. Yeah, totally. And uh, yeah, really happy to be here with you all. So bit of a bit of a weird journey coming into America as an immigrant. And I really wanted to build technology into the American industrial base as part of my core thesis of what I wanted to spend the next 20 years on. But actually, if you look at how the supply chain works, especially in advanced manufacturing, one of the key things you can look at is, well, your average machine shop or your average supplier to, to Lockheed or someone doing high precision you know, work, which is the space you want to play in commercially. If you look at the life cycle of your average machine shop, you kind of don't get a foot in the door at these big space and defense uh, primes until you're in like year five to year eight. So as I was looking at this, trying to diligence the industry and go, what's the right way to tackle this problem? I quickly realized that if you did it as a startup, you know, there's a failure mode in that you can't get revenue in the first 12 to 18 months. So you either start with low precision work, which you build a bad business off, or, you know, you have this like five to eight year chasm where it's really, really hard to get a foot in the door. So actually my first stab at fixing the problem in the industry was raising a small private equity fund, which I ran for about 13 months. So we diligenced hundreds and hundreds of high-precision machine shops uh, all across the country, serving all sorts of industries. And, you know, like did it quite successfully. We got some good deals under LOI. But as part of that journey of understanding what is the culture and technology of the existing supply base and what would be required to actually transform it to the level that would actually solve the problem for the customer and the country quickly realized that, you know, doing a tech-enabled private equity roll-up where we buy, say, the top two or three high-precision machine shops in the country and then build the technology into them was only ever going to get us to kind of 30% efficiency gains, which would have been like the greatest money-printing tech-enabled private equity roll-up of all time. But we had a real, you know, I had a real crisis of meaning 12 months ago because there was this obvious commercial path where I'd come to the country 12, 12 months ago and, you know, had to give up that kind of obvious path to success. But I ended up deciding that, you know, the only way to really fulfill the mission was to go back and rebuild all the technology from scratch, rebuild the culture from scratch. And even though that was a longer and a harder path, it was going to be the only true way to succeed to the level that it actually solved the, for, you know, our customers and for the country itself. Uh, so I ended up, you know, doing a capital return with the blessing of our LPs. Many of them are angel investors in Hadrian. And then 12 months ago, you know, started Hadrian properly to build all this kind of technology from scratch. So it's been an interesting path to get here. But I've always just been optimizing for 
you know, what's the fastest path over a 10-year life cycle to solve this problem for the country? And, you know, how do we do it? And I'm perfectly willing to change my mind on the strategy to get there as new information comes in. So, Chris, maybe you can you can update people because you know so much about sort of the machining landscape. Why is it so hard uh, to get for pre- precision parts made in aerospace and defense? And, and, and kind of walk us through what the kind of, you know, American dis- industrial defense space looks like uh, in terms of how many shops there are and sort of, you know, the types of people who work work in these Totally. So what I think people don't realize is if you think about every single advanced manufacturer in the company, whether it's making rockets, satellites, jets, or drones, uh, or you know, energy for climate change, they all outsource about 80 to 90% of their custom parts. So this isn't like automotive where you're printing you know, a thousand widgets that go on a Ford. This is, hey, we need five crazy complex geometry parts that are going on a rocket. So it's about $40, $50 billion in spend that's coming out of these space defense and other advanced manufacturers going into a domestic supply chain. But it's being routed through 3,000 or so small owner-operated mom-and-pop high-precision machine shops, which, so in aggregate, it's a huge industry, but it's incredibly fragmented. So you've really got, you know, 98% of that base is kind of less than 10 million in revenue. And it's real mom-and-pop. So usually there's a machinist who's the owner who runs the business, but maybe no more than 15 employees. So this was a legacy holdover from the first space race in the Cold War, because this is how the whole space and defense industrial base got built up. And it worked very well for a very long time. And actually, I have a lot of respect for these business owners. And part of how I want to play out Hadrian is making sure that they've got a path to come along in the journey with us. But the reality is, as customers have started moving faster, as you've seen new space and new defense companies really speed up to Silicon Valley pace, and therefore, all the legacy primes have come up to that speed with them. The supply chain is just built around, you know, 10 to 12 week lead times with a very low, low quality bar, low customer service bar, incredibly low MPS. And it just got to a breaking point over the last couple of years where, you know, new space companies that are trying to move super fast were just not getting the experience they wanted out of these machine shops. And, you know, a good average is like, hey, you need a new rocket engine part. It could take 10 to 12 weeks to get the first part, 50% of the orders are later have quality issues. And the customer service is effectively like, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to launch a rocket and I call Packy McCormick's machine shop and I say, like, Packy, where are my parts, man? And like 50% of the time, Packy's probably going to not know himself. And the other 50% of the time, he might like actively lie to me because it's such a crazy industry. So really, the entire advanced manufacturing base of the US is sitting on this house of cards of these 3,000 small businesses. But the real problem is, Yes, we have this huge market to go fix today. We'll build a great business. The real problem for the country, though, is that the average age of an owner of one of these machine shops is about 60, and the average age of a worker is about 55. So the big problem that we're trying to solve over the next decade, as we butt heads with China and as we're trying to win Space Race 2, in the same decade, because of the demographics of the retirement age, the supply base is just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's a real hidden problem that no one really knows about because you look at all these advanced rocket companies and say, wow, the supply chain must be really slick. And in fact, it's like a complete disaster. Packy, I want to bring you into the conversation because I know you've been been looking at this industry for not boring. And I'd love to hear your you know, impressions of, of why this is such a hard industry to, to build for. Yeah, well, first, I'd like to defend myself. If you'd called Packy McCormick's Precision Arts Factory, I would have told you the truth. And I bet. The broader point about the industry, I think, I, I think stands. Um, and, and so I guess I had met Chris a little over, you know, about a month and a half ago, Moshe Ed Shroud, uh had introduced us. And I think I, I was kind of primed. One, I had just had lunch with uh, Deli and OSC in the, in the crowd here. Uh, and two, 
I just read a lot of sci-fi. And so you know, I, I love picturing kind of these big things that happen in the future and then thinking backwards like, oh, well, a lot needs to happen between kind of now and then. So when I got on the phone with Chris, I think the ability to blend this like really big, ambitious mission to win Space Race 2, to make sure that you know, people, uh, that, that democracy kind of spreads throughout the solar system, and then go all the way down to the nitty-gritty kind of micron level uh, and, and really tighten focus to uh, lunar parts with a specific geometry uh, and really kind of figure out the, the problems first and figure out what needs to be solved and what can be automated and what shouldn't be automated. There's just so much complexity. And so I think what attracted me to, to Adrian and, and to you know, telling the story is just that like really interesting balance between huge, lofty, literally outer space kind of vision and the attention to detail and pragmatism that's needed to build a company that actually solves these problems. I think it's one of the most fascinating stories out there. I'd also, you know, to me, you know, someone who's read the, the A6CZ blog, I'm not going to even plunge here. This feels like a pretty great combination of it's time to build uh, software is eating the world. And then the American dynamism essay. Like, how, did, how did you two meet? How does this fit the American dynamism theme, Catherine? Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's a great point. It's a, it's literal building and literal building of factories. And so in many ways, it, it's probably the most literal definition of American dynamism and it's time to build. But we met, you know, I, I met Chris almost almost a year ago now. So so very much, you know, kind of got to see the, the pace of build. And, you know, it, it's interesting because Chris and I had talked a lot about like, others have tried similar, you know, builds before. Others have tried to bring automation into the factory I thought one of the things that was that was most compelling about Chris's story, as I wrote about in our investment memo, is, you know, a lot of people try this through the private equity side. And I think, you know, my, my, if I'm going to get on my soapbox here, you know, a lot of I think the greatest myths about building has been that you can take creative finance and that you can create value from creative finance without actually changing the physical atoms. And and one of the things that I think Chris uh, came to the re- realization of, to his point, that you could create a really interesting private equity backed business, but you're not actually creating real value. And and and, and if you even if you're creating kind of financial value, you're not creating uh, more shops, you're not creating more jobs, those sorts of things. And so, you know, I think the thing that we take a lot of pride in and thinking about American dynamism is that it is really bridging physical and virtual in many ways. And it's and it's bringing a lot of the automation, a lot of the software and a lot of sort of the virtual world into physical places like factories that haven't seen this kind of automation. So, so you know, getting to know Chris over over almost the past year, uh, seeing how he's how he's built the company, and and what's been really exciting for me is the types of people that he's brought in. In other examples of, of people trying to bring automation into factories, a lot of times it's you know it's a, a room of a bunch of Stanford computer scientists trying to figure out how to reverse engineer machining. And while that perhaps could be done, uh, bringing the actual machinists in to get their perspective is something that I think is I'm you know most admiring about Hadrian's approach, and that it's really putting machinists and computer scientists side by side to to kind of figure out how to how to best go about this automation question that's going to impact the future of building factories. So. There's a there's a, a lot to like and having uh, having kind of seen the story uh, play out over the last uh, nine months to a year, it's been extraordinary just to watch the pace and the types of people who are joining the company. Yeah, and I'd also like to say that you know there's two versions of solving the industrial supply base problem that have been tried before. Like one is the private equity version of financial engineering, and the other one is a very like frankly arrogant Silicon Valley intelligentsia approach. And they both come from the same failure mode, which is effectively private equity guys in suits think they're smarter than the person who's on the shop floor that has a bit of grease on their hands. (laughs) The same failure mode is 30 PhDs who've never run a machine think they can automate machining. Uh, But it's the same type of kind of, you know, coastal elite arrogance that looks down on people who 
work in factories, you know, and the insight that I really had was, if you think about what a CAM programmer or machinist is doing with flight grade hardware, especially, like they're solving, you know, trig problems and linear algebra and heat physics and all this stuff on the fly in real time under pressure. They might not have a high school degree or even have anyone in their family who graduated college, but they're smart as hell. And I actually think that most machinists, and we're seeing this at Hadrian where our best machinists are actually starting to learn how to code. I actually think that the right way to frame machinists is something along the lines of like, had they had a better, you know, socioeconomic background, they probably would have been a temp site, which, which, you know, from both angles was just the answers are already out there. Let's map, map the current knowledge and then automate it and make those people at the forefront versus this kind of top down arrogance of both the kind of East Coast finance world and the West Coast kind of software world. And, and then put them at the forefront and make sure that everyone's on an even keel and then get the business coordinating and working together. And I've gotten the chance over the past couple of weeks to get the doctor to some of these teams. And, you know, it's one of those things that to me, like I am an optimist and I'm even global about stuff sometimes where I'm like, this sounds amazing. And then you go in and actually meet the team and the culture is unbelievable. Where it's like all the things that you're saying are actually true where, you know, the machinists and the software engineers are tripping over each other to sing the other team's praises. They're working hand in hand. I think they're both thrilled to be getting to kind of work with the other side. I can't imagine that culture is incredibly easy to build, like getting more nitty gritty. How do you build a culture where you bring all of these tough people in from a bunch of different backgrounds and levels of expertise and areas of expertise and get them working together like that? Yeah. So I think the first thing is you have to hire the first batch of people who are close to understanding the other world as possible. Like you just have to start with this core to build off from. And then once you've got that core 10 or 12 people who really get it, you can build cultural reinforcements that like set the stage so that anyone new coming in, you know, kind of gets the, you know, gets the play. And people kind of laugh at me for this, but like, you know, literally everyone in the same, everyone in the company eats lunch together at the same table, right? So when people are hanging out, you've got maybe a top, you know, principal software engineer that was at Google you know, really having lunch or playing foosball or whatever with, you know, someone who's coming from Chick-fil-A and, you know, is on an hourly wage working for us in the factory. You have to start with a core group of people that really get that vision and understand the root cause of why the culture is so bad on both sides. And then you, you really have to proactively fight the, you know, reversion to the mean of, you know, there's a class dynamic or whatever inside the company. And so we, we really think intentionally about that. And that's, one of the more powerful things about Hadrian that we need to nurture over time. And we have like, you know, rejected top software engineering candidates purely because there's like a five to 10% risk that they'll come in and kind of walk all over the machinists to really build this core up. And now that we've got the core, we can kind of show people what we're doing and, you know, people can adopt our culture, but it, it's really intentional in the early days. And I think, yeah, there's huge failure modes in getting it wrong. Yeah, I, I want to dive into that because, you know, we've talked a little bit about just tech skepticism on all sides. And one of the things that I, I think is really awesome is that something like 70% of the people working at Hadrian have actually moved to to your, you know, to Los Angeles, moved to California from, from outside of the state to, to work with you. I, I'm just very curious, like, how do you build that sort of intentionality into overcoming tech skepticism, particularly on the part of people who who've honed a craft? Like, they they know what they're doing. They know how to precision parts, you know, like, how do you how do you overcome that? And how do you create a new culture even around how the craft is done? Yeah, I think like it's it's an everyday, it's an everyday battle. And you have to think of like what are the what are the one-liners that you can say to both teams where they understand it and they really 
grasp it immediately because over explaining stuff to both sides of the equation just doesn't work. You really have to find the language which people understand in a, a single sentence and they grasp, you know, they can pattern match from previous experience and they can grasp what they need to be doing. So for example, what we say to the software engineering and product management team is, you know, the guy at the shipping receiving station is your customer. And all these people coming from SaaS companies go, oh, okay, like, I'm used to these patterns of, uh, you know, I'm a software engineer at Enterprise SaaS, like I'll write customer service tickets, if there's a bug in production, you know, that is the most important thing that I can jump on. And then we make sure that for, you know, new operators and new machinists, in their first two weeks, they experience this revolution of they're suggesting something in Slack as a product change. And we make sure it gets prioritized and shipped, even if it might not be the best suggestion, in the first two weeks. And then we hold these weekly customer service meetings where it is a ritual and people grasp very quickly in their first three weeks that the relationship is, you know, automation team customer, not, you know, expensive automation team people on the factory floor that we don't give a shit about. And that's just like mapping reality and then figuring out how to scale the reality of the culture. But that's like some of the stuff we think about a lot in how we avoid those traps as we get bigger and bigger. Yeah. And even while you're not in the room, when I was talking to the teams, the engineers were referring to the users and they did it a couple of times and I wasn't sure what they were talking about because, you know, they're, they're customers eventually that will buy parts, but wasn't sure what they were talking about for the users. And then I realized that it was, you know, the machinists and people on the floor who were actually kind of using the software to do their jobs. And so I guess, you know, the question for me is what's it been like building kind of this vertically integrated company, like just chewing off all of this at once where the users are <laughs> internal people. I think it's like a whole different kind of mentality. Yes, but I think my, my previous experience building software as, you know, chief revenue officer in a highly technical environment in this great SaaS company in Australia where we were doing workforce management automation for blue collar businesses, there's two things. There's two big like macro insights or like meta insights. You know, one is the old Silicon Valley way of building software for product management is something along the lines of, hey, HR director, you have these paper workflows let me do a couple of discovery calls with you and then I'll automate some paper workflow tool and you, you, know, you end up building Workday, right? But the problem is understandable enough by a software engineer because they've you know, filled out an onboarding form at their prior company, right? There's a lot of context and the product is not so complicated. The workflows are not so complicated that you have to be sitting next to the customer as you're engineering it. So everyone that's trying to build industrial software to sell to industrial companies is inevitably going to fail because the mechanics of like product engineering and the incentives just simply don't work because the product is so insanely complicated that the only way to build it in parallel is effectively have the best engineers at a high context literally sitting next to the users and iterating daily. Like the pace of a good product management flow of even, even weekly or you know monthly is, is just too slow. And the stuff we need to build is so specific and complicated that unless you're like living in the factory, you're never going to learn enough of the lessons uh, to build the right software. So that's like one big chunk. And the second big chunk is a lot of what we do is actually resolving differences between master machinists or operators in, you know, how are we going to map this process into software? Like software engineering has this brilliant forcing function of, you know, resolving all these clashes in how we understand reality and how we want to do things because unless you've defined the process you can't software engineer it right so a lot of the trick is having all these subject matter experts literally in the room with software engineers and product managers and a lot of what we're doing is arguing over like how do we do this process because in machining and manufacturing in general you know everyone knows how to make a part or deburr a part or clean a part but there's not one single best way to do it 
So a lot of what we're doing is kind of breaking off into chunks of the process, arguing it through every single assumption, and then we kind of move it to process and then we kind of move it to software. And the way we talk about that internally is effectively, we hire artists, like we hire the best artists in the world for supply chain or machining or like whatever function. We let them do art. And as, as soon as they think they have a good scalable process, then we start engineering it into software. And then we launch it and we do this iteration loop. And in terms of biting it off all at once, you have to be kind, to be honest. And you have to be able to see the whole picture, but keep teams siloed enough because we built like five software and automation products simultaneously. So you've got to be aware of the meta scaffolding. But most engineers and product managers, you actually want them to be deeply focused on one part of the problem and have these integration points that you're sure that like, if one of those projects is going more slowly or fast, it doesn't break the kind of meta structure. And so we actually designed these like SWAT teams that are working on different products and just said, hey, whatever you're doing in this part of CAM programming, as long as you build this endpoint, don't worry about the rest of it. It's, it's going to integrate with the path. And that's an incredibly painful process, but it's literally the only way to map the meta structure and then build all this stuff in parallel. And then you just got to hire the best people and trust that they can sit next to the user and build what they want without much oversight, because otherwise you literally can't, you know, you, you can't perform enough oversight to parallel all of this. You just have to hire the best people and let them rip on it, you know? Yeah. I mean, the other, the other piece I think of this that, that I've picked up in talking to people is when I came in, I was picturing this factory that you just pressed a button in, you know, in, in some state in the very near term and there were no humans involved and the parts just got made. And there's very much this piece where the humans are a really important piece of it. And that certain things you'll automate uh, and then certain things you don't want to automate, you want to create these jobs. How do you think about what to automate and when and how to, you know, when to kind of spend with the revs and the PhD brain time on figuring out really hard problems that somebody can just do with their hands versus uh, letting those people do those things with their hands and getting to it later? Yeah, it's a great question. So if you if you look at the failed robotics companies or failed manufacturing startups, often the trap is let's try to automate everything. Where for every part of a process in a factory, what you usually get is 70 or 80% of the time savings or the benefit can be engineered in a couple of months. And then the last 30% is like a five-year, you know, need six PhDs to solve this incredibly hard geometry problem, right? So that was just that's just part of our core thesis of how we build things at Adrian. And it's a simple, you know, meme that we have internally, which is we speed run the 80%, and then we put smart wizards and user interfaces around the 20% to, you know, guide people through the process. And we only build stuff that is easy for computers to do, but costs people a lot of time. An example of that is like, how do you hold a part in a machine, right? You know, machine parts need custom geometry to like fixture them in place to kind of absorb or withstand the incredible amounts of torque as you're cutting metal. And there's two real parts to that process. The first one is, you know, out of these five fixturing strategies, which, more, which one am I going to pick? The second part is, let me design the geometry for that fixture in a CAD tool. Now, that first part is a 15-minute decision by an experienced person who can pick from a drop-down menu because they've seen hundreds of parts and they have the pattern matching but is an unbelievably hard physics simulation problem that might not even be possible with, you know, 10 PhDs for like three years. The back half of that problem, the geometry generation, costs six to 10 hours, but actually is relatively easy to solve once you've let the human make the decision of like, what, what fixture are you going for? And that's just kind of how we build everything internally because like manufacturing and automating the physical world has this trick where you know, if you let the long tail screw you over, you will die and not ship anything. So every, like literally every day, every product meeting, every engineer is doing this in their head as they're building things. It's like, how can we snap off this long tail 
that's highly costly in engineering land to a smart checklist process so that a human can jump in and do it. But we can ship something in three months that saves 80% of the time and you know reduces the lead time and reduces the errors without getting caught in this long tail rabbit hole of, oh, let's just go solve the hardest engineering problems. And we really select for that in the recruiting cycle. And we find that we hire people who've like been at other startups where you know, the engineering teams just focus on the hardest problem, not what the customer actually wants. But it's incredibly, like it takes a lot of discipline to not want to rabbit hole in the really hard problems and continue to just snap off the ugly long tail in terms of process and just focus on the short run ROI to just stand everything up really quickly. This this feels like a dream job for the, for the right CEO and also something very hard, right? Because you're, you're hiring people who are the smartest in the world, the particular thing that they do, and they have this very precise knowledge and then you're having to make decisions. Somebody even told me about, you know, there was a software that cost a little bit more than they would have wanted it to cost. And you said, just go for it and stop wasting time on it. How do you get yourself up to speed on each of the parts well enough to make the final call when there's, you know, 20 years of experience that goes into all the people on the team? Yeah, so the short answer is I don't. So, you know, I've, I've said this to Catherine a couple of times and to Mark as well, is that the way my brain works is that I know the meta of everything and I discreetly know nothing, right? But... If you kind of egoless about it and you're asking three master machinists, hey, you know, what sort of work holding should we be using in this situation? And all three of them agree and it's kind of this standard practice. You can assume that that part of the decision tree is like, you know, if you're thinking in bets, it's like, it's, it's not a one-way door, it's a cheap bet. So let's just quickly triangulate, ship that and move on. Whereas something that's incredibly capital intensive, has long lead times or is like a one-way door, like a platform bet, then you've got a first principles the entire thing. And for those, so the, the first trick is knowing when to pattern match and knowing when to do first principles. Because if you try all pattern matching, you're dead. If you try all first principles, you're also dead because it takes five years to ship the first factory, which is too slow. And if you're in first principles mode, you have to go through this iterative process of checking all the assumptions and triangulating those and then making a considered, you know, considered bet. So I would say I'm really good at understanding technical domains that I discreetly know nothing about and making like decent risk-adjusted decisions and then putting in hedges for those decisions in case we're wrong to keep the overall progress kind of fast without, you know, without without bottlenecking ourselves on all these like decisions that just don't matter. And actually a part of that was building software for blue-collar businesses for so long that I've seen many, 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 many types of situations, whether it's childcare, healthcare, industrials, logistics you get a really good pattern match for like what matters and what doesn't. You know, does an hour of overtime a week really matter? Like probably not. Does, you know, incurring paid leave for 20 hours a week really matter? Well, yes, because you could breach a compliance law and it might screw over the entire business. So let's really focus on that because it has like a high risk threshold. So that's that's kind of how we do it. And then we also select for people that want to think like that and then unwind our decisions when we're wrong. We're wrong often. And the entire company is kind of built around that like, decision-making thesis. And it's probably one of the only reasons we've, we're here is that everyone at the company enjoys having those sorts of like meta arguments of like, what is the right way to do this thing with, you know, as little ego as humanly possible, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes, that makes complete sense. And there's, I think this interesting theme that kind of goes to how your brain works and then goes all the way down to how you're able to hire people into to do the jobs, right? So you're building software such that you mentioned people from Chick-fil-A or when I spoke to the team, they mentioned a line cook that, you know, got super emotional on the call when, when he was able to, to get the job and come in and, and kind of learn how to become a machinist. And you want to make it as simple as possible for people to be able to do these complex jobs without kind of taking the autonomy and agency and the feeling that they're learning something and achieving something out of the process. 
How do you think about creating all of these jobs and, and making it possible for people to learn how to do these these kind of high tech jobs in an easy as as easy way as possible? Yeah, so I think a lot of the complexity is firstly tribal knowledge, and if you can still tribal knowledge down to some checklist processes, like that's the first big step. Because then training is, hey, Packy, like you're learning how to cut metal on a saw. Here are the 10 steps. You know, the first seven are probably easy. But if you get stuck on the last three, please ask for help. Whereas most manufacturing training is, hey, Packy, like apprentice under someone for three years and maybe they'll spend an hour vaguely teaching you about, you know, saw cutting metal at night. But who knows, right? So we, we structure it a lot. And then how we think about it philosophically in the software is we don't because it kind of evolves naturally from the process of how we automate the 80% and leave the tail 20%. So, you know, that is the right evolutionary way to build factory automation software. And therefore, you end up with each process is, you know, the stuff that the human's doing is the hardest part of that process, right? But within the meta factory, you know, you start at shipping and receiving, then you go into tool building, then you go into repeat jobs and machining, and then you go into prototype machining, and then, you know, you can be a quality inspector or a CAM programmer. So within each of those rungs of hourly pay bands and seniority, there's enough short cliffs to jump where you can have people learning on the job. And that, you know, building tools actually teaches you a lot about machining. So by the time you're kind of ready for a promotion, you've already learned half of it through the context of doing the kind of previous rung in complexity and skill. And I don't want to kind of claim we've designed it that way, but it's just like, that's the obvious way. It's the only way to rebuild America's manufacturing workforce is to be able to flood the first part of that funnel with thousands of people who are smart, young, maybe they fix their car on the weekend, you know, they play video games, and then have this kind of self-learning process throughout the funnel. Because if you try and skip someone to the eighth stage of complexity, it takes three years to train them and they kind of die. But I also think there's a bit of, you know, the software is evolving that way because it's the right way to build the software and it's all kind of like working pretty, pretty naturally because it makes sense that that's the way it would go. But we're also kind of aware that effectively... You know, how do we build the top tier machinists? Well, we've got to train them from scratch. What's the most effective way to do that? Well, you can't have your top tier machinist spending six years training someone. We have to build this meta structure where we can f- flood the front end of the funnel and have everyone kind of self-learn and hit these rungs along the way. But also that comes from great operating leaders from SpaceX, from GE, who've learned these lessons of like, how do you train people? And we've baked that philosophy into the software by listening to the people who have done this sort of on mass training before. But again, it's kind of like, okay, well, you got this problem of how do you how do you ramp the manufacturing workforce? Okay, like, let's not guess. None of us have done that before. Let's find the three best people in the country who've done that before and pick out the learnings and then implement those and then test and scale. And that's kind of where we're at. So that's, I think, a little bit on the the supply side um, of the the industry, right, is the fact that you mentioned that there's, you know, people who, who run the shops are, are aging out of ownership, that the lead machinists are aging out of being lead machinists and that you need to kind of revitalize the base of these workers. I want to switch gears to the other side. And and maybe this is one for, for Catherine or Chris, whoever feels uh, more comfortable here taking this one. But uh, when I was talking to, to Deli the other night, he mentioned that this is, we're in this kind of like four-year window where there's uh, kind of this explosion in demand that makes all of this kind of uh, economically possible, uh, really for the first time and economically necessary for the first time. Can you explain the, the why now on the demand side, why this is such an exciting time in space and defense? I'll let, I'll let Chris take why it's exciting for space because I was going to ask him too about sort of the the customer base and I know I know he, he can talk some about who he's working with but on the defense side like that, it's definitely true I don't know that it's a four year window I actually think in some ways like there's a little bit more of a 
of a, of a crunch in terms of time on, on what's happening on the defense side, because a lot of the companies that have raised capital over the last five years to, to serve the Department of Defense in this sort of, you know, hardware, software, hybrid uh, mission that they've been pursuing with startups, a lot of them are, are trying to get out of what, you know, what we refer to and what the DOD refers to as the valley of death, which is like very much a, a company goes through, you know, pilots with the DOD, they go through certain contracts with the DOD, and then they get to a point where they're ready for production, where they're ready to really ramp up and the DOD doesn't give them contracts. And so the thing that I think on the defense side that that makes it a very critical time is there's been just a funding glut, I think, in many ways, of defense-related companies, uh, startups that are hardware, software hybrids or drone companies that are that are trying to to work with the DOD. And there's a question of how how large these companies can get to get really into being prime contractors or or, or selling as a as a program of record. And I think it's different on commercial space. I'll let Chris speak more to to what he's seen on the commercial space side. Uh, but I definitely think there is sort of this this unique time where there's just been a ton of capital that's gone to these companies, a lot of talent. Uh, people are excited to to work in defense. I mean, aerospace and defense has never been more exciting uh, for people coming out of school and for people who, who may not have uh, wanted to work uh, on the defense side, say, five or 10 years ago. But I do think that it is a, a unique moment in time where we have the opportunity to, to really invest in, in shoring up the, these capabilities. I'll let Chris speak to, to aerospace, though. On what... Yeah, so I think as a startup, like, if you just back out of the problem of like, how do you build massive amounts of market share in a fragmented industry, right? If you look at the best venture capital companies, the pattern is always the same where the first batch of customers that gets them to half a billion in revenue is, you know, they're new, they're fast growing. So you, you want to generate as many tailwinds as possible, right? And the space and defense market, you know, four years ago, every program of record, you know, Lockheed's making satellites, right? They're a space company. Those contracts for those parts would have been locked in for the last 20 years or like F-16s, right? Those machine shops with those contracts. They're not even contractual. It's just so hard to resource apart from one factory to another because of the quality standards that there's this real barrier to that revenue shifting. Whereas four years ago, you start seeing all these new space companies and they are trying to move so fast and they're generating a bunch of net new spend that as a startup, you can actually go grab while you wait for the long tail of spend to kind of unlock. And you see this with like HR software, right? It's like, well, how do you build a PeopleSoft competitor? You have to start with... Where are the batch of customers that need onboarding software and why do they need it specifically and are they growing fast? And then grab onto those and then you eventually build into all these enterprise sales cycles. So if you started Hadrian five years ago, there would not have been enough net new spend and customer pain to really get us accelerated to the point where we can build a huge, really exciting business and attract the talent and the capital. And the, the reason why it makes sense now is because the long tail of the spend, so maybe an extra $25 billion, is inevitably going to unlock for the first time in 30 years because of the demographics of the retirement age and all these competitive pressures on our customers. So that's why now is the right time to do it. But if you started this probably two years later, you're dead. If you started it two years earlier, probably there's not enough space companies to like, you know, fund the initial revenue. So that's kind of how I thought about it. And that, that was why it makes sense. And, and just broadening this question out, I actually want to bring Mark into this because anytime we ask the the why now question or for historical uh, for historical perspective, it's always great to hear Mark's thought. But of course, you know, it was 2000, 2011 when Software is Eating the World came out. And I think one of the criticisms of tech over the last 10 years has been that tech is only worried about the virtual world, that it doesn't actually touch atoms. And of course, Mark has invested in many companies. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on this sort of why now question, Mark. Yeah, so... There's a whole bunch to it. So it is just flat out easier to build companies that are just software. Like it, it just is. And maybe that's even more the case today. 
um, in a lot of ways, you know, with the old supply chain issues, anything hardware related has like lots of potential issues. Like if the whole for a startup that can be, you know, very, very, very bad. It's very easy for hardware startups to go under. So it's so so building anything with hardware is definitely playing in hard mode. And then I would also say, you know, the other big issue we think about a lot is, you know, the, the incumbents have a lot of power, like incumbents in many, many complex industries, you know, are organized into either a monopoly or some form of oligopoly cartel. You know, they're frequently, you know, intertangled with the government. You know, they've achieved what's called regulatory capture. And so they, they basically have taken over their, their regulatory bodies at the government level or at the industry level. And so they, you know, they have a fair amount of power to keep new entrants out. On the other side, the pattern is just very clear, which is, you know, the industries that we're talking about, they're both really important, which is, you know, there need to be significant advances. I mean, aerospace and, and defense space, like, you know, these are these are industries that really matter. And it's allies, they really matter to the, you know, industrial base of these countries, they really matter to the economy. Uh, they really matter to the future, you know, standard of living for people all over the planet. They really, really matter. And so, that you know, these are very important problems. And then these markets are big, right? Like when you get kind of out of the pure software world and into these other markets, what you find is they're generally much bigger slices of GDP. The numbers involved are just staggering. And so the, the prize is very large. And so then you basically have, I think, you know, two questions, which you guys have kind of talked about, but you, you know, you have two big questions, which is one is, you know, is there a strategy? And I, and I was thinking in terms of like, is there like a macro strategy to be able to go take one of these big markets? And then is there like a very specific entry strategy, right? Is yep. there like a tip of the spear that, you know, where there's some kind of technological change or methodological change or economic change where there's reason to believe that there's like a seam, right, that you can kind of inject into and get started? And, you know, you know that, that seem might be a new technology. It also might just be a new approach. And it might be a new approach to an underserved part of the market. But you need to have, like, some very specific theory on how to enter. And then the other question is, you know, the people question, right? Which is ultimately the, you know, the most important question of all, which is, you know, what kind of founding team and what kind of executive team and, and customer service team do you need to build to be able to go into these markets? And you put a stake in the ground and you kind of say, I'm going to build a new car company or I'm going to build a new rocket company. You know, you can, if you really push that hard and you, you start with the right team, you can recruit the best and the brightest from all around the world. And you can basically get all of the fired up and sharp and energetic people out of the incumbents, you know, who really want to do new things to come work with you. And you can kind of basically take the talent. There's a new kind of entrepreneur, I think, emerging that kind of has the complete skill set. And then there, there are these new kinds of teams forming that, that didn't really exist in the past that I, I think are really exciting. So anyway, we're bullish on the idea. These startups will continue to be the startups in hard mode. You know, they will have more drama. They will they will raise more money. <laughs> they will spend more money. They will run, you know, higher octane. They will have greater risk. You know, some of them won't work. But, uh, you know, the opportunities are so big that the ones that do work and the teams that can pull it off are going to build really amazing things. Yeah, and I, I broadly agree with Mark, and I'll, I'll make two, two extra comments. One is we're seeing this secular decline in people, software engineers, especially who are sick of working on optimizing ads or building dog walking apps, yep. right? <laughs> and that is a real moment in history where people actually want to work at Hadrian because of the mission, but also they get to build software that affects the physical world and they can see it the next day versus it being through 100 layers of abstraction. And, you know, do they really care? Probably not. The second interesting thing about building harder companies, and I agree, like if we were just a SaaS company, like my God, would I be sleeping more? But who cares, you know? The interesting thing that you solve if you have this, as Mark put it, you know, this wedge strategy that leads into a big market and you time it right, is you solve the Lindy problem. And the Lindy problem as I see it is functionally like, as a startup, you want to grow very fast on an exponential curve, but the Lindy effect is such that the faster you grow, the, you know, the faster you fall. If you nail this sort of a strategy correctly, you have this wedge, which, you know, you get the startup growth. But if you lead into a larger sector where the average company that you're disrupting has been around for 30 to 40 years, what you like functionally should get is this massive tailwind 
that leads into this 100-year company because it might take you a couple of years to get a billion in revenue, but maybe 20 years to get to the full 40. But because you're dealing with this kind of pattern matching of you know, the Lindy effect, I, I think you can do this like fundamental one-two punch, which builds really amazing large companies the right way. And I think this is what you're going to see with companies like Flexport is like, are they the fastest growing company of all time? No. But like, will that company potentially be around for like 100 years and be very hard to disrupt once they reach maturity? Like probably also, yes. You've got to be really intentional about starting that sort of a company. And I view Hadrian as like a, there's three phases. There's the first five years, then the next 30. And then there's, you know, how do you hand it over to the next generation in year 50? But yeah, that, that's kind of how, how I kind of think about timing and like building massive companies as well. If that's the case, how do you choose that this was going to be the thing that you're going to work on for the next 35 years? So that's a huge commitment to make. It's going to be hard probably for a lot of that. I'm sure the first five are going to be the hardest, but just, we talked a little bit about the stakes in the beginning, but how do you see the stakes? What's important here? What's, what's life in space going to be like over the next decade, two decades, three decades? Like what are all the, the things at stake here? Yeah. So, so I think from my experience, I knew, I knew the company that I wanted to start had a bunch of commercial attributes, you know, fragmented, disruptable, low NPS, you know, the Keith for Boys strategy, right? But then on a mission basis, it's like, well, do you want to spend four years pumping and dumping a SaaS company? Like, no, you want to spend 20 years on something. That's my, you know, that's my personal choice. Then what do you pick, right? And the Planet Labs co-founders, Robbie and Will, have this concept of like an Archimedes company, which is you build this company that by being as financially successful as possible also has these knock-on effects to the world, these second and third order impacts where the mission is perfectly aligned with the balance sheet, right? Because often what you get is mission-driven companies that try to do their mission, but it's in clash with them being financially successful. So I was obsessed with finding in the American industrial space, what is an Archimedes lever of a company where if you build it and pull it, you can have an outsized impact on something that you really care about. And... As an Australian, I was seeing the rise of the CCP across the world. And, you know, I'm a big student of history and I'm a firm believer in, you know, reserve currency of the world changes every roughly 100 years. And we're clearly, we're clearly in that trap of potentially the global order changing. And if you look back at history, the thing that wins wars or prevents wars from starting is like peace through strength, basically. You know, wars are just a macro abstraction over two guys sizing each other up at a bar at 2 a.m. in the morning. And, you know, fights happen when one person incorrectly, like, <laughs> guesses their ability to win and, you know, whatever. But if you look back, it's not who has the best fighter jet. It's like, how many fighter jets can we make? What's the replenishment strategy? Yada, yada, yada. And if you just look at the dynamics that is going in space and defense in America, and you realize that the supply base is on the decline. And you think about like, well, why are 50% of the F-16s grounded? You know, okay, well, they don't have parts and they're cannibalizing other planes to get parts. Like why? And if you dig five layers deep, you know, it's not turtles all the way down, it's Bob's machine shop all the way down, right? So because of my obsession with finding this like Archimedes lever of a company and where was the place where if I put 10 years of effort, I could get 100 years of benefit for something that I really cared about, which is making sure that in this decade, as we settle the solar system, it is largely under a free, peaceful world order, not with a rising totalitarian threat from a country who like chemically castrates millions of women. And then with my particular skill set and Venn diagram, it's like, okay, well, how can I fit myself into this puzzle where it's the best match? Like, am I the person to go start Andrew? Absolutely not. Am I the person to go start, you know, a SpaceX? Absolutely not. But do I have this weird mix of blue collar experience, financial engineering and software development in complex environments that happens to kind of perfectly match this? 
And then once you realize that by, you know, building Hadrian, you speed up all these other important companies. And as those other companies speed up, you really help the country. Then, you know, it took me two years of thinking this through to really get there and making sure it all made sense. But that's how I really landed on it. And, you you know, you got to realize like for an aerospace engineer, they might be spending 50 to 60% of their time just getting parts, right? And you can think about that like 10 years ago, a back-end software engineer spending 50 to 60% of their time rebuilding payments or rebuilding, you know, text message notifications or... You know, they're spending half their time zonking servers up and down. But then you have, you know, AWS, Stripe, and Twilio, which is this infrastructure layer. And the the effect that you get is the cost of starting a software company goes, you know, much, much lower, but also the ease and rate of starting software companies goes through the roof. And what I realized was there is no infrastructure layer for aerospace engineers and advanced manufacturers. So that apart from solving these geopolitical issues, like we can really build this thing where people can focus on the stuff that they're good at rather than trying to get parts. So this is all this thinking that I did over the years and really, really trying to find this industry and mission that I wanted to spend that time on. And part of the thesis that I was seeking was like financially and commercially successful, but also like how could we build a company that just by simply focusing on making the company successful, you naturally get these knock-on effects. And that's, that's kind of how I thought through the whole problem. And that's why we ended up kind of where we did. So Chris, you kind of alluded, alluded to this, but I want to kind of ask the question directly. So you know, there's sort of this narrative for about, you know, I don't know, 20 years or so, kind of between the mid-late 90s and maybe five years ago, which basically said, you know, sort of the cloudification of manufacturing. And I think you, you kind of alluded to that earlier, Packy did, which is, you know, basically this idea that manufacturing is this thing that can kind of be abstracted away and then, you know, specifically offshore, and then, you know, a lot of it moved to China specifically. And a lot of people, I think, have this mental image of like there's this China manufacturing cloud <laughs> and like, Stuff happens in China and it all, you know, whatever, whatever. They kind of do all this stuff sent by finished products. And there's, you know, really, there's not much more to it than that. And of course, those of us who have, you know, worked in or invested in hardware businesses know that that's not quite how it works. But, you know, this sort of this this image. And then, of course, there's all this political, economic, you know, tension and controversy over all this offshoring in the last 20 years. You know, call it globalization, you know, it's kind of the positive framing. And then, you know, kind of the offshoring or hollowing out of American, uh, you know, manufacturing is, you know, the negative framing. And this is a topic that obviously comes up in politics a lot. You know, in the last few years, you know, for a variety of reasons, it feels like that conversation in the U.S. has really shifted. And I, I alluded to this in my, in my build essay, which is kind of like, you know, maybe some of that made sense for a while. Maybe it's gone too far. And, you know, both President Trump and then also President Biden in remarkably similar language, had basically said it's time to reverse that process and it's time to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. You know, for a variety of reasons, economic reasons, but also national security reasons, right? And then I guess maybe there's an easy narrative there, which is, oh, we can just bring it all back. Like, we can just bring it all back. We can sort of, yep. you hear this a lot now with the Russia thing. It's like, we're going we're gonna to move into this bipolar, multipolar world. We're no longer going to be reliant <sighs> on Russia and natural resources. We're no longer going to be reliant on Chinese manufacturing. We're just going to be able to kind of do everything domestically. And you'll have this kind of, you know, this more of the segmented or kind of, you know, kind yep. of isolated, isolated world. Maybe that picture is also too abstract, which is the global supply chains are so complex and so integrated. And there's so many parts that come from any finished product that kind of, you know, quote, restoring manufacturing actually is going to be much harder than people think. And so from your vantage point, like, how do you analyze all that? And if you if you want to kind of, you know, either make forecasts or talk about what you think will drive kind of where this all lands, you know, maybe 10 years from now. Yeah, that is a big question. And we're going to dance. I'm going to, I'm going to dance around my thesis of like the cultural impact of manufacturing and the financialization of America. So there's going to be a couple of angles of attack to this. But I think the, the way I look at the root cause of this is like, why did we offshore manufacturing in the first place? And it basically all started in the seventies with the removal, you know, with Bretton Woods, right? Because you have this over financialization of everything. You have this boil up in the eighties of private equity and you drive this American corporate culture where 
the people running the company grew up in such a peaceful time that, you know, offshoring manufacturing just massively increases your risk and massively lowers your robustness, right? And if you have people making those decisions where they've never gotten slapped in the face by reality, they'll overstretch the rubber band towards efficiency, not robustness. And that's just what happened. And then we did the whole thing. And also the State Department made an incredibly bad bet that, you know, by putting capitalism into China, they would turn into a democracy, which turned out to be not true, right? So we made two or three fundamental mistakes in my mind. In terms of reshoring manufacturing, it is like significantly harder than people think it is. And it's less of a supply chain problem and it's more of a culture and human problem. And I'll try and explain what I mean. The first problem is obvious where the way you train people and the way you learn skills, you cannot skip any of the ladders. You cannot take a workforce that's used to making widgets for a Toyota and get them to run a semiconductor factory. With There is no training, right? You have to go up these complexity rungs in skills in a human population. The only thing you can optimize for is how fast you can climb those rungs. You absolutely just can't skip to the top, right? So what you get with reshoring manufacturing is it's, it's not as simple as like, hey, let's bring pharma back and let's bring semiconductors back because that's only successful if you can either import the talent wholesale or you, know, you have to have these sub-industries of manufacturing compl- complexity that generate the talent that can actually do the high complex stuff, right? So what we lost was not just these big things like semiconductor, which are obviously a huge problem. We lost the population that can generate the highest tier of people that can go solve those problems like in the country, right? And that is just a long problem to fix because it takes, you know, 10 to 20 years to train a huge workforce to do that at scale. And we just don't have a good starting base because we offshored all the simple stuff, right? And that's what's really important about manufacturing. So in terms of predictions, I think that it's going to be a super hot topic geopolitically. That's obvious. But like, if we take semiconductor as an example or pharma, you know, I think it's going to take significantly longer than people think it is because the country does not know how to build things fast anymore. And that is a real culture and people issue versus something where we can just import the technical skills. And that's what's really scary about this is you think about semiconductors and the State Department can say, well, let's give Intel $50 billion and build a fab in Arizona. Like, that's not going to happen in under five years, maybe not even 10. And the core reason is like, you could take a bunch of aerospace manufacturers and say, hey, go learn, you know, semiconductor because it's slightly harder in two years, but you need 10,000 of them. There isn't 10,000 and the abstraction layer of complexity is so high that it's just not, it's just not possible. The other thing, which is a bit more esoteric is I think that when we outsourced manufacturing, we lost this industry that naturally generates serious people. And what's interesting is we build up society in these layers of abstraction. You know, the first wrong is like, Mark, we're fighting over a loaf of bread. I'm pretty serious about this. We might get into a fight over it. And we've built society so that we don't have to do that anymore. We can go, you know, do Burning Man or run venture capital funds or like whatever, right? And manufacturing is one of those industries where because you make contact with reality every single day, you can't hide from the realities of how the real world works. So having a big manufacturing population actually generates a ton of serious people that when they are 50 in Congress, they're making really rational decisions that are grounded in like, real-world experience. Where if you remove manufacturing or other hardcore industries from the equation, you have someone that's now 50 that's grown up having lived a very easy life, and they're making decisions that pattern match off that easy life, not over making contact with reality every single day. And that culture and people issue, the retraining and the seriousness at scale, you know, to do reassuring and manufacturing is a huge deal. And that's why it's, I think it's going to take much longer than people think it is to kind of reshore all this advanced manufacturing. We can do it. You know, it's America, it's going to be fine. 
but it's not going to be as simple as let's grab 500 people from TSMC and import them and train everybody because that's just not how you do things at scale. It's just not how the world works. So that's kind of my like esoteric opinion on the whole problem. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I know what... And, and actually like one, sorry, one, one thing I'll last say is like you could argue that the biggest thing that Elon has done with SpaceX for the country is not SpaceX. It's the fact that they trained thousands of aerospace engineers who are 25 and are now 30 and now starting all these companies, right? So... Mm-hmm. One of my hopes with Hadrian is that by building the company big enough, we teach people how to do this and they go off and start all these other advanced manufacturing companies because we're teaching them like the meta of how to build things in the real world, you know. So I know we don't have too much time and I could talk about American seriousness all day, uh, but I want to talk about, uh, you know, why you named the company, Chris, why you named it Hadrian and and what you think that means about the moment we're living in. (laughs) (laughs) So we're getting really esoteric. So... (laughs) Uh, I'm one of those people that believes history repeats itself in rhymes and the patterns of how humans do things are, you know, time immemorial. Obviously, the different situations are different, but I think Americans are very similar to the Roman Empire. We have very similar patterns of behavior. And there's two things about Hadrian which which resonated with me. One is, you know, during his reign, he rebuilt a ton of the crumbling infrastructure at a time where the empire was a massive sprawl. And a lot of flaws with him as an emperor, but he was one of the five good emperors. So, but that act of rebuilding a ton of infrastructure that I would argue potentially bought the empire another good 100 to 200 years of, you know, effective life is resonates with me deeply as a, that that is what we're doing with Hadrian. I truly believe that if we don't have this domestic advanced manufacturing base and rebuild it, that we could lose global leadership incredibly quickly. So it resonates with me as a very similar pattern. And the other thing is, I, I truly believe in the concept of peace through strength, in that the best, the best way to promote peace and avoid war is to have two or three parties with very big sticks that are keeping each other in check. And Hadrian actually was one of the uh, first known people in Latin to like use that phrase and obviously, you know, became throughout the years adopted by Reagan and other people. But those two kind of cultural moments and how I see the patterns of history repeating itself is, is why we need to become company that way. And then I think the third thing is names are really powerful. And I think like the way things sound, you know, you kind of pick the name and people come to you. And uh, it's it's a strong sounding Roman name that means a lot to a lot of people. And I think that, you know, people naturally gravitate towards us if that resonates with them, but also people that maybe, you know, don't gravitate towards that philosophy of peace through strength gravitate away from us. And that's actually a good thing as a startup because you want this core band of people that believe the same thing. And you expand that into the world. So yeah, that's that's where the philosophy of the name came from. Yeah, no, and we we certainly believe that uh, that Hadrian exemplifies American dynamism as as well. So it's interesting to hear those historical links. Well, I know we're 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 out of time, but Chris, thank you so much for joining us. And Mark and Packy, thanks so much for for the great questions. It's always exciting to chat with you about this this mission and vision, and we're excited to to be along for the journey. So thanks so much. No, thank you all. Really enjoyed the chat. And Packy and Mark, I'll speak to you soon. And yeah, thanks, Catherine, for setting all this up. Great, thanks, folks. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Excellent.